First Samuel chapter 2, Hannah's prayer. We read again verses 2 and 3. There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside thee, neither is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so exceeding proudly. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by him actions are weighed. Let's look then at this wonderful thanksgiving of Hannah. And let's begin to learn some things about it. And some things from it. The first thing is that this is a song that has brought immense blessing to souls, to saints, down through the years. It is a psalm that is particularly been blessed of God and used of him in the hearts and lives of men and women. I think church history teaches that. I think we can draw that even from the Bible itself. Some of the psalms take up these themes. David knew this song of Hannah and he used it and repeated some of the language of it in his own psalms. And that's evidence. Bless David. But even closer at hand here in the history, I think it was a blessing to Eli. This was a prayer that knocked Eli for six It revived him, I believe. Now we know that Hannah prayed twice. The first prayer was silent and unheard. Eli was sitting at the doorpost, as we know, and she was beside him. He saw her lips moving, but he didn't hear anything. And you remember how he responded to that? He falsely accused her. Because it said there that, How long wilt thou be drunken? Put away thy wine from thee. And she said, No, my Lord, I'm a woman of a sorrowful spirit. I haven't drunk neither wine nor strong drink. It never passes my lips, but I poured out my soul before the Lord. Don't don't count me for a daughter of Belial, your handmaid. And so she corrected him. He realized then that she was a woman of prayer. Now that man, he's implying she's a daughter of Belial. And yet he couldn't see that his own sons were sons of Belial. I mean, this is an amazing thing. This godly woman he rebukes, and yet we don't read before this that he rebuked his sons. But you see, whenever this woman comes back again the second time and begins to speak to Eli, I'm this woman who prayed. This is the answer to my prayer, the Samuel. We assume that Eli is sitting in the same place. It was here I prayed. So it's in the same place. But now she breaks out into prayer again. But this time her mouth's open wide and her prayer's heard. It's heard. She wants it to be heard. It's a thanksgiving. It's not in her heart anymore. It's coming out loud. And after this prayer, Eli doesn't say anything. He's dumbfounded. He's silent. It obviously has an effect upon him. It has transformed him in some way. I believe that it revived him. You see, Hannah looks over at Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. 
She's going to leave her boy here, as we saw on the Lord's Day, in the midst of wolves. How is she going to do that? She's going to do it by faith. But she's going to pray. And it's going to be a public prayer. And Eli's going to hear it. Probably Hophni and Phinehas hear it as well. But it's going to be heard in the tabernacle because she opens her mouth wide. My mouth is enlarged and the words are coming out. So she wants old Eli to be a spiritual father to her boy. How is this docile man who can't even rebuke his own sons, how is he going to become a spiritual father to Samuel? And the answer is this prayer. It revived him. It transformed him. It did something to him. It quickened him. And she prays this to glorify God, but she prays it also for the edification of Eli and to revive the old high priest. And after this, Eli becomes Samuel's guard and Samuel's mentor. And he doesn't let this boy go the way his sons went. Why is it different? Because this prayer has made it different. It has had an effect. That's what I think we're meant to draw from the text. And now Eli begins to do things that we don't read that he did before. He began to rebuke his sons. Now it wasn't very successful because it was too late. And God begins to come to speak to him through the man of God that he sends along and then through the vision that he gives to Samuel later on God begins to communicate to Eli because there's been a change in him. I think that this prayer has somehow transformed him. It has had an effect on his life. And that's what I'm trying to say to you. This is a transformative prayer. It's worth spending time on. It's worth sitting at Hannah's feet like old Eli on his chair. It's worth sitting around her words and hearing them and imbibing them. And I encourage you to read them often. I encourage you as we, even as we meet to study Samuel, and you have a few minutes before the service or whatever, I encourage you to pray and to read Hannah's prayer in those few minutes that you wait. Because you'll see so much of it coming to pass and having a bearing on the text of Samuel as we go along. It's a beacon through the whole book. And it it can transform you. It can revive you. So we want to camp at it. And we want to spend time to hear these words of this mother in Israel. And trust that they may revive us as they revived Olele. And I think we ought to sit at the feet of this mother in Israel. Because there was a person far better than us. That sat at her feet. And I'm thinking of Mary. The virgin mother of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. Her Magnificat. Is Hannah's prayer. Recycled. And that's a word I very carefully use. Not repeated. Not read. But it has come into her. And it has been transformative in her life. And it's been recycled. And it's coming out naturally out of her heart. Not repeated, but it's coming out naturally out of her personality and her circumstance. 
But it's obvious that she imbibed the spirit of that prayer. She spent a long time studying Hannah. She sat at Hannah's feet. And I don't think she began sitting at Hannah's feet when she became expectant. I think Mary sat at Hannah's feet a long time before she became expectant. In fact, I think that this hymn was so transformative in Hannah's life that the Lord picked her. And the Lord had prepared her. And the Lord had made her a holy vessel. And part of her being made a holy vessel was Hannah, I believe. Hannah's life. Hannah was her hero. Now, why would Hannah be her hero? Well, I think Hannah was the hero of many women, young women in Israel. But we believe that Mary's mother was called Anna. And Anna's just Hannah. So her mother bore this name. You remember those of us that were in Israel, we went to the church of St. Anne's. That church is over 900 years old. And it has very good acoustics. And you remember we sung in it? That church is dedicated to the mother of Mary, the Virgin Mary. So Hannah was a hero to Mary. And her mother had the name of Hannah. And she imbibed this song, I believe. And that's why it's come out recycled. Whenever she has the same child and infant in her womb, the Magnificat. So she was steeped in the words of Hannah. It was digested into her personality. And that doesn't just take a few minutes. You have to repeat and go over again and study and digest and meditate night and day for something to get into your spirit to become part of your personality so you can recycle it in the spirit of prayer. So if one is Mary, who was young, just a teenager, received such benefit from this song, I think we can too. So we're talking about a young teenager. We're talking about an old man, old man Eli, approaching his 80s, benefiting from this thanksgiving. So if they can benefit by sitting long at Hannah's feet, then I believe we can too as we spend some time on it. May may the Lord make it beneficial. May the Lord make it transformative to us as we hear her voice sitting at Hannah's feet, hearing her voice. So that's the first thing that I would say, how it has been a blessing in the lives of some of the Bible characters. And then secondly... I would say this, in this thanksgiving, Hannah exalts God. Uh, She says, my horns exalted in the Lord. My heart rejoiceth in the Lord. I rejoice in thy salvation. And she talks about the Lord. In fact, Jehovah's name occurs, I think, nine times. It's the only name uh, that is occurring. She doesn't talk about anybody else. She's not exalting anybody else. She's just focusing on God He will do this. He will do the other. The Lord. It's constantly magnifying the Lord. Just like Mary went on to do. My soul doth magnify the Lord. That's why we call it the Magnificat. Because of the Latin word for magnify. Magnifies the Lord. So she proclaims the greatness and the excellence of the Redeemer Rock of Israel. None holy as the Lord, none beside thee, no rock like unto our God. 
So he says, exalting the Redeemer rock of Israel. She's the greatest theologian in Israel at this present time. We don't hear much out of Eli's mouth about the greatness of God. Uh, We don't hear much from the priests who are to be the teachers in Israel about the greatness of God. Here's a woman who can't even go in, in far into the place. She's at the doorpost. She has to stand at the door. And here's the one proclaiming the greatness of God. Here's the theologian in Israel. Here's the one giving us the doctrine of God that seems to have fallen into the end of the streets. She's the one who's telling us who the Lord is and what it is that the Lord does. And so she wants us to know God. She wants us to know the God who worked great things in her life. She wants us to know the God who gave her a son. She wants us to know him who's done wondrous things for her. And he can do wondrous things for Israel. And he can do wondrous things for the church. And so she gives us her creed. And this is what this is. This is a creed concerning God. Who is God? What is God like? What are the works of God? And this is a creed that that answers all of these questions. It's in actual fact an inspired description of God. Inspired. There's no question about that. It's prophecy. She goes down into eternity to the end of the world in actual fact. To the end of time and to the outskirts of the distant nations even in this prayer. She's inspired as she gives it forth. And I tell you this. You'll hardly get a more excellent inspired description of God in this book of Samuel than this one at the very start. So she gives us it here at the start and the Holy Spirit inspires her to give it and it's put in the book so that we enter into the book and we have to bypass this this high tower of God, the rock. As if to say, you're just coming into the book now There are 50 odd chapters ahead of you. This is the God you're going to meet. This is the one you want to watch out for. Now I summarize the book of Samuel. Three words. Samuel, Saul, David. That's a summary of the book. And it's two parts. But really we're not to keep our eye on Samuel. And we're not to keep our eye on Saul. Or so much on David. We're to keep our eye on this God who is using Samuel, Saul and David who is working through them and with them and revealing his glory by means of them. We're to look for God, this God, this rock of salvation. We're to keep our eye open for him in the book. This is why it's here at the start, I believe. It's exalting God. It's telling us who we're going to see, who we're going to meet. This, this one who, who does all of this, who kills and makes alive, who brings down and brings up, who makes poor and makes rich, who visits, who judges, who wears things. It's this God. We're going to see him. We're going to get to know him. 
And every time you go through the book and you've read your chapter and you've studied your chapter, you can come back to this prayer and say, Ah, I saw that. I see that fulfilled. So we're looking for God in the book. And then the third thing that's very special about this song is that it it leads us to Christ. It leads us to Christ. Whenever Hannah praises, you have to remember she's doing so on three levels. First of all, there's a personal level. This woman who was barren who had a baby. But when you hear it, that's very much in the background. She doesn't really mention that very much. She says that barren has born seven. But that's not Hannah. She only bore five or six, I think. She didn't bore seven. She takes in that symbolic number. So that's the only time she really mentions it. She's not really thinking about herself. She's thinking about something more. She's thinking about another barren woman who's going to bear a perfect number of children. She's thinking of the church, especially of the Gentile church, the barren wife, the barren woman who's going to bring forth more, a perfect number, the elect number. So she's seen more than herself. She's thinking of the national situation, the Philistines in her mind and all of that. But she sees the kingship coming. She sees the anointing of the kings coming. And she sees Christ and his great salvation that extends to the ends of the earth and the judgment of God on the whole world. She goes to the very end. She sees it all. And she brings us to Christ. And you have to keep that in mind when you go through this, this, this psalm. Now you'll know that there are four songs in Samuel. There's this one. There's David's song of deliverance in 2 Samuel 22. There's his last words, 2 Samuel 23. And there's the lament over Saul and Jonathan in chapter 1, I think it is, of the Second Samuel And those four psalms are all linked. And the one word that links them, that you'll find in all of those psalms, is the word anointed. Because those psalms are always bringing us to Christ. The Lord's anointed. You have that here. Yes, it is personal. Mine enemies. You know. But she's more concerned about the Lord's enemies. You see here... Her culminating in Christ when you compare verse 1 to verse 10. My mouth is enlarged over mine enemies. That's how she starts off. But then in verse 10, what does she say? The adversaries of the Lord, the enemies of the Lord, shall be broken to pieces. She's saying, my heart's and my mouth's enlarged over mine enemies. I've got the victory in the word. I've got the victory by faith. I don't want to destroy them, and I'm not destroying them. It's not my job to destroy them, but I, I have the rejoicing. I have the gladness in God over my enemies. They haven't robbed me of that. But then she says in verse 10, The adversaries of the Lord, they'll be broken to pieces. Out of heaven shall he thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth. Not just Israel. The ends of the earth. She's going to the ends of the earth. She's going to the end of the world. The end of time. How the Lord is going to judge the nations and come back again. So she's culminating in in the second coming. The coming of Christ. And then it says he'll give strength unto his king. 
Remember, there isn't even a king in Israel at the minute. It's years before Saul gets, gets anointed. And yet she can see that forehead. She can see the king, the anointed. And she's not just speaking about Saul. And she's not just speaking about David. She's speaking of Christ. That's who she's speaking about. She says, my horn is exalted. But that's nothing. That's nothing to what we're going to see. His horn. The horn of his anointed is going to be exalted. So she's repeating things that are occurring at the start. She's repeating them at the end. But instead of applying them to herself, she's applying them to Christ. She leads us to Christ. She takes us away from herself and she leads us to Christ. And that's what every preacher should do. And that's what every Christian should do. To take away from himself or herself to bring on to Christ. And so she culminates in the very last word. His anointed. His Christ. She's talking about Messiah. The Hebrew is Messiah. Meshach. His anointed. She's speaking of Jesus. Her horn ends there with with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The culmination of Christ. You remember, God has raised up for us a horn of salvation in the house of David. He's speaking Hannah's prayer. He's knowing Hannah's prayer is fulfilled. It's come to pass. The horn, the Lord's horn in the house of David has now been lifted up in Christ. And the Lord said, I've set my king, mine anointed, upon his holy hill of Zion. So that last word of thanksgiving, we really have to underline it. Messiah. She's brought us to Messiah. And other prophets will, will do something similar. Whenever we see these anointed ones, Saul and David, we have to remember that, that they fail and they falter and they backslide and they apostatize and they decline and all the rest. And this isn't the real anointed. This isn't the true Messiah. This couldn't be him. We still have to wait for him. And so see beyond Saul and David and don't stumble at their stumblings but realize that the true anointed one will come and he'll never sin, he'll never fail. The true Christ. And he'll reign forever and ever. And of his kingdom there'll be no end. And he'll reach out to the ends of the earth. And then the next thing I would say is that her doctrine of God is from the Bible. Or at least the Bible that she possesses at that time, which is mainly the writings of Moses. Whenever you look especially at verse 2, but at other places as well, but especially at verse 2, you'll realize that Hannah gets this from the word of God. She's not making God up. She's not saying, oh, I think God is like this and I'll just sing about it any way I like. No, she doesn't make God up. She doesn't imagine a God. She sings and praises the God revealed in his word. It's a biblical prayer. She is exercising faith in the word of God. I believe the God of the Bible. She's trusting in the writings of Moses. The God revealed to Israel of old. Her doctrine of God is based on scripture. And that's where our doctrine of God must be based. We can't imagine a God of our own making. That's idolatry. No, God reveals himself and God must reveal himself. And we believe that the way that he has revealed himself 
is by his word. He has declared his greatness. And Hannah has heard this. Hannah has read this. Hannah believes this. And she has come to discover this God who has revealed himself to her in Holy Scripture. And she sings that God that she trusts and believes in. So we can only know God as he reveals himself, congregation. And therefore we can only know him by faith. And faith in his revelation of himself. And verse 2 especially, it's from Exodus. But it's especially from Deuteronomy 32. That publishing of God, the rock, in the 32nd chapter. The rock of salvation. The rock that begat his people. That we read of there. Their rock is not as our rock. Deuteronomy 32. You see, she's contrasting here with the gods, isn't she? There's none holy as the Lord. There's none beside thee. There's no no other rock like our God. Where are their gods? Their rocks, Deuteronomy says. Our rock is not like them. Their rock is not as our rock, the word of God says. Even our enemies themselves are judges of that. Glorious in holiness, the Bible says. None holy as the Lord. None as great as the Lord. And so she gets this from from the Bible. So here's a woman who knows scripture. Here's a woman who believes scripture. And remember, it's a dark age. But somehow she's got to know the God of scripture. This is a woman of true faith. True faith. And that is why she could pray as she did in her barrenness. Because she had true faith. In the God of Israel. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And she was taught that in Israel. How and when we do not know. Because as I said it was a very dark period. And the priests are blind. And the offering is despised in the tabernacle. It's an apostate age. But somehow here's a woman. Part of the remnant who has been taught God's word, maybe from a child, maybe like Timothy, from a child, you've you've known the Holy Scriptures. Well, here she is. Thank God you have the Bible. Thank God you have the Bible. Thank God you've been taught the Bible. Thank God you are being taught the Bible. Thank God your faith is growing because of the Bible, because of the hearing of God's word. Continue in it. Don't neglect your privilege. Don't despise the privilege that you have. But continue in it. And continue to grow to be men and women of faith as Hannah was. So her faith is based on scripture. What he has revealed concerning himself. She believes that. Another thing that we learn from this. In her song, Hannah begins with the towering nature of God in his holiness. In his unsurpassable holiness. Do you see what she says there? There is none holy as the Lord. That's where she starts. Holiness. That's the first thing she has to say about God. There's none as holy as him. That seems to grip her more than anything else. 
the holiness of God. If God wants us to know anything about himself, this is the first, his absolute holiness. The angels perpetually declare this, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is filled with his glory. You know, that's what the wicked don't like about God. And whenever they make gods, as they do make gods, all the gods that they make, none of them are holy. They're never holy. The pagan gods were never holy. The pagan gods were just powerful men who did unclean things, who did impure things, who were just like men. That's the kind of gods that they made. But God is not like that. God is holy. Infinitely holy. And we can't imagine a God. And if we do imagine a God, we'll imagine him without holiness. But our God is holy. Glorious in holiness, Moses says. He's pure. He's without corruption. He's without darkness. He's no dark side. He's no deformity. He's nothing of his essence out of place. There's no uncleanness. There's no malice. There is no crookedness. There is nothing like anything that we find in heathen gods. None as holy as God. She's thinking about all the other gods. None of them are as holy as God. There's nobody as holy as God. No God or no man or no creature or no angel. None none as holy as God. None beside thee. No rock like our God. She's doing it all negatively. Why is she doing this negatively? Because to impress upon us the solitariness, the independence, the absolute majesty and height of God above all other creatures and beings in the universe. None. None beside, none like, none attains unto. He is alone in his holiness, in his absolute purity. And so these negatives are saying more strongly than just saying God is holy. God is above, is a rock, a mighty rock. Yeah, he is a mighty rock, but he's not like any other. That's a mighty, strong, literary way of putting it. Poetic way, if you like. This is a poem to really hit home the, the majesty of God. He's unsurpassable in holiness. And you have to keep this in mind when you go through this book. Because you know you're going to see things. You're going to be disappointed with people. Samuel's going to make mistakes. Saul's going to apostatize. David He's going to really disappoint us. He's going to mess up. He's going to behave so ungodlike. We're going to see terrible things. But none of this mars God. He is holy. Events and providences will take place. Tragedies and wars. Death and destruction. But God is holy. He never does wrong. He never does wickedly. He stands alone. Untarnished. Holy. Infinitely holy. And we have to keep this in mind as we go through the book. His holiness is a sovereign holiness. It's an omnipotent holiness. 
It's an irresistible holiness. He is the tower of salvation in his holiness. And he's the God we'll see in this book. And he's our God. Because she says, there's not any rock like, like our God. Our rock. He's ours. Through faith in his son Jesus Christ. Though we are unholy. But because of the anointed one. God has his people that he saves. And they can run into this high tower who is such a holy God because the anointed one is at the door to admit them. This high priest at the gate who admits us, able to save to the uttermost all that come unto God by him. Even the holy God who is a consuming fire because of the anointed one, because of our Christ, we have admittance. You see also in this psalm that, that this holy, sovereign, omnipotent God is a God of knowledge. What does it say there? He's a God who knows. The Lord, verse 3, is a God of knowledge. And by him actions are wed. And that will be frequently revealed in, in, in Samuel. You'll see that God knows. He knows his people. He knows everything. He knows their opposition. He knows their enemies. He knows their downsitting and their uprising. He knows their battles. He knows their going astray. He knows their sins. There's nothing is hid from him. He's aware of it all. He knows that Hannah is barren. He knows that Penina is her adversary. He knows what Hophnius and Phineas does. He knows that Eli has been a failure in his house. He knows all of this. None of this is is hid from him. Nor is this a careless, carefree knowledge. Because he says he knows. He doesn't turn a blind eye. He knows. And by him actions are weighed. Now you know what a weighing machine is. You weigh carefully things. The shopkeeper. He will be an expert with his weighing machine. And God is just and righteous. A God of knowledge who doesn't turn a blind eye, but who weighs things. And he weighs justly, you know, because he sees the heart, and he sees the motive, and he just doesn't weigh by outward weight, but he weighs in the motives where he sees in the heart. He knows our works, our actions. He knows our motives behind those actions. He knows all the works of men, all the secret works of men, and he knows what leads to those works out of the hearts of men. He weighs them all. He searches men. We know this about God. By weighing here is meant assessing, measuring of what kind they are. God has a balance, a just balance, and he knows the sin or the righteousness of all our actions. You remember that king? Thou art weighed in the balances, found wanting. And so God discovers the true motives. He's able to ascertain our sincerity and our truthfulness. And we can't pull the wool over his eyes. He sees the sincerity of our repentance. He sees when we're truly sorry. And he loves to see when we're truly sorry. 
And he loves to see when we're truly humble because of our sins. He especially assesses that. And he assesses the opposite. Pride, self-righteousness. But when you get to know this God, you begin to realise that you have to lie in the dust before him. Because he's so holy. And it's fine to lie in the dust before him. He wants that. He wants that. He raises them up out of the dust, it says in the song. He loves that. He loves the humble sinner. He loves the repentant sinner. He loves the sinner who just takes hold of his anointed for the salvation of grace. That's what he wants. That's the only way to be saved and to be justified with God. So we must be walking humbly. And that is expressed, and that's the last thing that I'm going to bring out tonight because the time is gone. We learn lastly from this prayer that the knowledge of God ought to have a powerfully humbling effect upon us. Because what does it say there in verse 3? Talk no more so exceedingly proudly. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth. Why? Well, on the one side God is holy, but on the other side, for he's a God of knowledge and he weighs actions. So we have to humble ourselves before God. He's a God who ought to be feared and reverenced. He's a God who ought to be believed and trusted. What I'm saying is, such a knowledge of God cannot just be head knowledge only. It has to be practical. And this is a practical thanksgiving. Yes, she says God's holy. He's a God of knowledge. He weighs actions. But that should also mean that we should fear him. And we shouldn't talk proudly. It should have a practical effect on our life. We just shouldn't have theology in our head and we're all orthodox in the words of the creed and yet have no godliness in life. No. True faith leads to works. And it's practical. And the true knowledge of God is transforming. And if one who knows that God is holy and he wears things up, then you can't speak exceedingly proudly. And you can't talk with arrogance. As if you're a no-wall, as if you're perfect, and if you're right and nobody else is right. You can't talk like that. You can't behave like that. Not even if you're a minister, an elder, a church member. It doesn't matter who you are. You can never talk proudly or arrogantly to any soul. Any soul. And you certainly can't do it before God. Because our God is, is holy. And the knowledge of God ought to lead to the fear of God. And to reverence for him. It's the beginning of wisdom. And it certainly ought to abase our pride. And lead us to a humble confession of our sins. And to contrition and true humility before God. So if Hannah's prayer is truly heard and received with faith. It ought to be transforming. It ought to be transforming. It ought to increase our faith. It ought to revive us. Like it revived old Eli. 
It ought to make us holy and pure, like it did that holy vessel of Jesus Christ, the Virgin Mother. Such a godly saint there had never been on the earth like her. And Hannah's prayer, I feel, has had something to do with that. So we can spend time at it. Let's pray.